Hello, everybody, and welcome to Disability is Not a Bar. Um, as always, uh, I'm your co-host, Sharon McDonald, along with my wonderful co-host, Halima Farouk. <laughs> Hi, Halima. Uh, and today we are to be joined um, by uh, another guest in our second series, uh, which is now well on its way, um, which is very exciting. We're very glad that we've not only got a second season, but that we are packing mm -hmm. it full of guests uh, mm -hmm. in this second part. Uh, and we are delighted today to be joined by Stefan Osborne. Thank you so much for joining us. Um, Stefan, Welcome. A, uh, a non-practicing solicitor, practicing barrister, and also a deputy district judge. Um, and he qualified as solicitor in 2012, but transferred to the bar in 2019, which would be interesting to talk about. He was then appointed as a DDJ in 2020, uh, covering areas of civil as well as some private family and family money. Thank you so much for joining us, Stefan. Thank you so much for coming on. Uh, we're delighted to have you. Um, and I'm going to pass straight over to Halima to start off with our questions. Again, I want to echo thank you so much for coming on. Um, I sort of put out a tweet saying we're looking for guests for season two. And lo and behold, we have a judge saying I'd love to come on. And I was like, oh, my goodness. So thank you so much for coming on. Um, the first question is, of course, uh, why law? I, I, I don't normally say why the bar, but um, it seems as though from your intro, we know that you were a solicitor beforehand. So if I go with why law and then you could cover solicitor and then why the bar all, all in sort of one umbrella? Yes, of course. Well, um, the, the, the desire to do law derived from a childhood um uh, ambition to want to argue for a living so it seemed quite a natural thing to do uh, to go into the law because there was plenty of scope for for argument so um, I think it was a combination about that and an inquisitorial nature about how the world worked and how things um, kind of developed so that took me into A-level law which then took me into a degree in law and, and the rest just kind of followed from there but but you're very right to say that I did actually start off and qualify as a solicitor in, in 2012 and, I, and actually that derived from some interesting advice that I got uh, whilst on a mini pupillage um, many, many years ago, second year in university. Uh, and I was quite interested in commercial law at the time. Uh, one of the barristers who I shadowed on that particular day uh, on the mini pupillage actually indicated that if I wanted to do commercial law, I'd probably be better off as a solicitor, which was actually very sound advice for that particular area of law. But of course, plans developed and I changed my interest in the law into more civil areas. Uh, at which I didn't discover until some time later that it wasn't necessarily right that a career as a solicitor uh, was the most appropriate for more general areas of civil law. And that was actually partially what drove me into then cross-qualifying uh, to the bar because I enjoyed advocacy uh, and I found as a solicitor I was increasingly doing less and less of it. Uh, so out of a desire to want to do more of that, um, that's what prompted me to uh, cross-qualify to the bar. It's it's so interesting that you say, you know, um, arguing as a child, I think I think that's probably where all of our sort of desire to be a lawyer and you, you sort of say it as a joke, you say, oh, I'm going to be a lawyer and then you actually follow through with it when you're, when you're older. I think my parents use it yeah. as like a, and it, it, it's almost like a slightly backhanded compliment of, oh, you seem to like arguing. <laughs> Go do it. Yes. <laughs> yes, I like to say, I like to talk for a living. <laughs> I'm going to do that. Okay. I, I say that, yeah. I say that as well. Like uh, I think it's it's a sort of nice way of saying that you're not arguing. Um, that sort of leads me nicely onto uh, my second question. And of course, um, you know, the podcast is disability is not a bar. So uh, I'd be really grateful if you could tell me more about your your disability and your medical con condition and how um, 
that sort of affects you in your in your day-to-day practice Mm. yes of course so it was actually a diagnosis fairly late enough i was only diagnosed in 2017 uh, and i was diagnosed with bipolar affective disorder Uh, but actually in the process of obtaining and achieving that diagnosis uh, there was a little bit of retrospectiveness looking back at things that had happened in life to that day and actually realizing that the diagnosis had actually affected me uh, for quite a considerable time probably from late childhood kind of uh, onwards really uh, and it was a really interesting discovery because a lot of things just started to fall into place about things that had happened in life across the way and um, realizing that really a lot of that had been as a result of the um, condition uh, but in terms of its effect on work and, and work obviously uh, from that period I had two further years as a solicitor before I came to the bar uh, and life as a solicitor with a disability was actually quite hard uh, because employer or the employer that I worked for um, were not particularly helpful in terms of um, making adjustments and understanding the nature of the condition and uh, mainly because they had real issues with targets and and those targets kind of needed to be adhered to so I actually found that quite a difficult task but actually moving to the bar actually uh, in an interesting way actually made life a little bit easier uh, because I was in charge of my own workload um, in charge of what I did and when I did to an extent uh, it actually made life uh, significantly easier in terms of managing the condition uh, because I was able quite easily to fit things around times when I wasn't feeling so good uh, and, and always to manage the workload in a way that was much more manageable than I was able to do as an employee. Uh, and, and I've actually found it um, really good. And that's also been the case with with sitting uh, as a as a fee-paid judge as well, in that they are very accommodating about changing plans uh, and fitting things around other commitments and times when you're not so well. So actually, um, it's actually worked out quite well in the end. That's really wonderful to hear because I think that uh, the bar when I first got diagnosed I got diagnosed quite late as well um I was only 22 and uh, I'm coming out 26 and so it's sort of been in that time and I, I wanted to go to the bar before that I'd already got onto the bar course and so I hadn't got arrangements and things in place and I started to consider whether the bar would be a place for me because it, of its pace and actually it, the more I've come through it I, I've stuck at it but the more I've come through I've realized actually it's going to be much better for me to have that, be able to pace it at my own, um, at sort of my own time, take the cases that I'm able to and, you know, do it slightly differently to others. And that doesn't mean that I'm any worse. It just means that I can do it and hopefully be better for the ones that I can put in that, uh, that time in um, and, and do what's best for me, which I think is, is really important. And the more that I've heard from, from barristers who say that, it's really reassuring. So yeah, thank you for saying that because just hearing it is like, good, we're going in the right direction um, going with Definitely. that. Bipolar, I feel like is one that is quite often misunderstood by mm. people, especially in the media, or it's used as a joke line sometimes if people are a little bit emotional all day. So how does it affect you sort of personally? Um, and, and is that a sort of a, a daily challenge or something that comes up uh, less mm. frequently? And how, how do you sort of work work around that? Mind. yeah it, it it's quite cyclical in nature but it doesn't necessarily pop up at, at, at any particular time uh the, the one thing that I, that I found quite clear about it since i've had the diagnosis and managing the medication um ha, ha, has been that stress is a significant trigger so, so probably the most important thing is to to have some foresight and some planning into your workload to ensure that it never uh, I mean, something obviously I learned very early on is that, that in law, there's no way to eliminate stress in your workload. There's absolutely, it's just not possible. 
Um, but but there are ways to manage it to to ensure that you've got the right level of workload so that you're not adding uh, to the stress and that the stress is as manageable uh, as it can be for you and your uh, particular circumstances. So, so it's a combination of things. It's a combination of foresight and planning and then being very um, kind to yourself in, in, in times where you're not so well. Uh, and communicating, I think, is the other key to this, is communicating with your instructing sisters, with your clerks, uh, about times where you might not feel so good. And you don't necessarily have to give them all of the detail, but it's important to communicate with them that, that, that it is a time when you're not so good. And is there anything that they can do in terms of helping you manage your workload or or possibly redistributing things to other people? So, um, yeah, it, it really is a combination of uh, managing things daily to keep them under track uh, and, on, and on track uh, and also ensuring that you um, recognise times when you're not so well. Uh, and manage that time and be generous to yourself and kind to yourself during those periods. I want to touch a little bit on um, schooling life. I know that you have said, uh, looking at it retrospectively, things now make more sense uh, post-diagnosis. But, um, you know, if I could just touch on that a little bit more and um, ask you about how things were when you were in school and perhaps university um and, and when you you know studied law whether you whether there was a moment where you said okay i i might be um on to something here you know like I, I might need a bit more help uh with this or or was it completely not picked up until uh 2017 i think you said so, yeah 2017. Um, no, yeah no, no no it's a really it is a really in interesting question i think I think it comes on to what Charlotte was saying about the, the, the possible misunderstanding, even amongst medical professionals, of, of bipolar affective disorder and, it, and, it, and its diagnosis. Because for a long time during the latter part of university, I've just been treated uh, for normal unipolar depression. Um, uh, and, and that was just treated in, in the normal way with antidepressants and the like. Um, but, but no, I, there wasn't really a, a kind of clarity moment at any point until the di I think the diagnosis arrived out of my um, interest into why I wasn't getting better effectively, why, why things weren't improving. And it was a kind of inquisitiveness on my part to understand a little bit better what was going on. And that led me to push uh, the doctors into doing some more digging. And that that's what led to the diagnosis. But I think prior to that point and that kind of inquisitiveness at that stage, um, I think I just got on with life really and, and things had just been tough at various uh, times and hadn't really attributed it to anything uh, in particular really. I wonder if I could ask it uh, in a different way then. So given your diagnosis, um, how has um, disclosure worked for you? I, I know that again you have touched on it a little bit um, but have you uh, had a discussion with your chambers and um, also as your work as a judge um, is it something that you disclose or will you you know sort of say it when it comes up because uh, I think it's a, a very sort of key questions especially for listeners and other guests that we've had where some of them don't tell at all uh, others like myself who use a white cane you can't ignore it um, so yeah it'll be quite interesting to know your your sort of take on it yeah, it, it it is interesting. I th I think from my perspective, it, I, I've kind of dealt with it on a on a case by case basis. So, when it comes to chambers, I've been I've been very honest and upfront about it because it comes back to uh, the issue of managing workload and, and knowing that I need to perhaps manage my diary in a little bit of a different way to perhaps other, the way other people do. 
So, so with them, I've been I've been perfectly uh, upfront about it. When it comes to sitting, it, it's been less of an issue because of the way it works. I only sit at times that are convenient to me. Where it has perhaps well not been an issue, but but where I've had days where I've not felt so well, um, they've been very accommodating with the fact that I've not been able to sit because I've not been particularly well, uh, and they've been very supportive. And there actually hasn't been a need to explain exactly why. I'm not able to sit on that particular day. It's just been accepted at face value and, that, and that's been that. So I think it really depends on the on the circumstances that you, that, that you find yourself in. But but I would be a big advocate about speaking up to the extent that you feel comfortable uh, because it's only with communicating what it is is happening to you and what you need um, that you're really going to get that support. Uh, and if you don't do that, uh, then it's going to be incredibly difficult for people to, to understand what's going on with you and what help you need so i think i'd be quite a strong advocate of um doing that but but to the extent it's necessary and appropriate i think absolutely what led you sort of going back to career progression um and sort of discussing um the the barrister side of of this uh podcast you see went from uh you've talked about going from being solicitor to being a barrister and sort of your reasonings for that um so i still got a couple of questions from then onwards and firstly how have you found uh civil and what sort of your favorite areas of practice and, and why and what led you to that development also how was the changeover between um going from sort of solicitor to barrister and was that quite a natural jump um or was it sort of difficult going back uh to do sort of a course again before going in um and starting sort of starting afresh but obviously knowing that you want to do something a little bit different with sort of your area yeah of course well kind of taking those in order then um in terms of the civil as a practice area well it, it, it's very wide i mean i do a lot of work in, in personal injury um uh, and insurance litigation which was things that i was doing as a solicitor anyway so that 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 became um that, that became second nature that wasn't particularly difficult and then i started to branch out into other areas into housing law um uh, and things like that of, uh, of that nature so i have quite a wide civil practice but it does cover those uh, main areas uh housing and, and and personal injury um and in terms of how i found the the, the transition well actually it was actually quite a straightforward process the chambers that i went to at the time had a lot of work for junior tenants and that was part of the reason why they were recruiting so there was a lot of work and i was able to get stuck in very quickly uh, and I'd actually had a period um, pre-qualification as a solicitor, uh, as a uh, solicitor's agent. So was, uh, the, the whole process of court wasn't new to me by any stretch of the imagination. Uh, and I'd kept up an advocacy practice whilst being a solicitor and qualified as a solicitor advocate. So the whole idea of being in court. I suppose that the strangest thing about the transition was um, the way in which you were. Obviously, I've gone from working in law firms, worked in various law firms, to uh, working on your own account and, and managing your own practice and that that takes a bit of getting used to because you have a fear of saying no to things um quite early on in your career because you want to please and you want to uh, try to get ahead so that that probably rather than the work itself that the nature of the way in which you work was probably the most difficult um thing to adjust to really I think makes us quite a big a big change um what then led you uh, in was it 2020 to to become apply apply to become uh, a judge uh, deputy district judge um, is that was that sort of a natural progression or was that something you came across uh, firstly what led you to that and um, how was that we've spoken to a couple of judges before 
who have spoken about how the process was applying. Um, and if, they, if you can shed a little bit of light uh, on that, particularly if uh, anything had to do with, with your conditions, um, your condition as well, and whether you sort of felt mm. the need to disclose that or had anything, uh, any adaptations needed for the process or, or sitting now. Yes, well, that, well that, that, that's interesting. I might come to that point first because actually the process of applying is very receptive to anybody with a disability. They're always very open to uh, looking at things. So for my... Uh, particular recruitment process it was it was quite a long process so it involved um, a couple was it three yeah three in total online tests uh, followed by some um, situational questioning in the form of a, a mock hearing and an interview as well and for all stages um, they were very prepared to put in reasonable adjustments so for the uh, online test I was given extra time to complete those tests uh, and for the interview day and for the preparation day I was given additional preparation time for each stage of the interview process as well. Uh, and that wasn't a difficult thing to arrange. It was very easy to arrange, I think, within one or two emails with the Judicial Appointments Commission. Um, and, that, and that was very, very easy to um, arrange. So that was that was very pleasing. Um, in terms of sitting, as I say, because of the nature of the work that, that fee-paid judges do, uh, there hasn't really been a necessity to have a conversation with anybody about that uh, other than to cancel the odd sitting day because I've not felt so well. And again, as I said earlier, uh, that process was incredibly straightforward and, and the staff were incredibly supportive uh, in, in doing that. So uh, that wasn't particularly um, difficult. Uh, and to go back to the first part of your question about what um, piqued my interest in applying, well, that was... Um, it actually came from the time when I was a solicitor's agent back in right at the start of my legal career. And I actually quite admired the work that district judges and deputy district judges did. What I perhaps didn't appreciate at that time was, and I, I appreciate now from City, is how wide the jurisdiction of a, of a district judge is. It's incredibly broad. Uh, and having taken on additional tickets in family law as well, that, that becomes even wider. Uh, and it's a real, a lot of the time, it is a real um, intellectual challenge to sit as a as a deputy district judge uh, and you actually go home at the end of the day actually feeling quite pleased with yourself most of the time because you actually feel that you've made some some sort of difference to people uh, and their lives and, and they you may not have given them the decision they wanted um, but you have made a difference and you have resolved a, a significant part or an issue in there that was playing a significant role in their lives so it's a very re rewarding process wonderful to know I, I work for the the press of the family division uh, and it, even then that's you see how broad just the area of family is alone <laughs> I can't and then sometimes he sits in civil and I, I can't, can't quite comprehend the amount uh, of knowledge that you must have to be able to, to sit across uh, across multiple areas um, but yeah I can imagine it is uh, I can imagine it's a positive challenge to be able to, to do that and stretch yourself a little bit is it um what's sort of your balance now of of um practicing at the bar uh, and and sitting do you have a, a, and do you hope to sit more is that sort of the goal now that you sort of enjoy enjoy being a judge um it, it, it it's something that's very hard to find the right balance because you can't go in and out of work at the bar as easily as you can in and out of sitting days uh, as, a, as a judge they are much easier to do because there isn't as much advanced preparation required for a day's sitting uh, as there is for a, a day's case as a, as, a, as a barrister. So I'm always on the lookout to try and find and strike the right balance between the two. Uh, but but it is something that, that is incredibly 
um, difficult to do. And, it, and it's quite a lot of trial and error in terms of trying to get the the, the right balance between the two. Um, and I wouldn't say I'm happy with it at the moment, but it, but it's definitely a work in progress in terms of striking that balance. It's, in, it's interesting to talk to people who have sort of become judges because you have some who say, it was always my goal. <laughs> I sort of rushed to get there. Uh, and some people say, oh, I, I never sort of thought about it until until the end. So it's, it's, it's very interesting that there seems to be no one path to the, to the judiciary um, and some people seem to come very late um, and some people you know, practice for as, as minimal as possible. Um, when you when you are, um, we sort of talk, talked about you having rest days um, and days off, particularly if you're if you're um, sitting. But when you're uh, when you're practicing, do you ever feel that find that that you uh, are affected by bipolar during ever during the day or mid uh, between the day that you'd have to, for example, let other counsel know? And what's your experience been with? Not, not we sort of talked quite a lot about your clerks um, or uh, you know, people only needing to know as much as they need to know. But I'm wondering if you ever had to close like halfway through the day, for example, um, or, or change your pattern of, of, of practice uh, sort of at an unexpected time. Because I think that sometimes conditions can sort of flare. And I wondered if that's that, that's the case for you, if it, get, if it gets particularly difficult. Yeah, it, I think because of the way in which my condition triggers, it, it's probably not as bad as some others because it, 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 it can be fairly easy to anticipate when you're going to become more stressed i suppose there have been times where I turn, because one of the things about being a fee page is you often don't know what your day looks like until you get to court in the morning uh, and there has been a couple of times where i've turned up and the list has looked um completely unmanageable but but coming back to what i said earlier the, the easy way to remedy that is to just go and have a word with the listing officer um and they're very accommodating and other judges will be very accommodating as well in terms of trying to help you out you don't actually even need to particularly disclose why it is you can't do something if you're telling them that you can't deal with that list you don't even actually necessarily need to disclose why it is uh, as i come back to earlier i personally find it quite helpful to do that because it provides a context for why you're doing something and it's not because you're lazy or, or you're looking for an easy day there's a particular reason why uh, and that uh, that has happened um a couple of times but uh, at the bar, no, I've never, it, it, for, I'm perhaps fortunately, um, I've never been in the situation where something's developed during the day uh, and I've not been able to do something that, that that was planned to be done. But again, I think that comes back to it. Again, this was very much trial and error as well, is in terms of workload management and trying to make sure that I have the right level of workload uh, in the first place to, to ensure that I don't get to a situation where that becomes uh, a particular problem. And that's not always, uh, uh, so that's very much trial and error, but uh, over a process of time that's become easier to do uh, and to foresee when things might become a problem the trial and error thing is is really refreshing to hear if i'm honest because sort of particularly with conditions and coming in uh, i think it can be quite uh, worrying to sort of think that you have to have nailed it on day one and know exactly how how much workload you need uh, and how much it uh, um it can affect you because i don't know that i've got no idea yet um so that's it's it's nice to hear that um it it's, it's, it's nice to hear it's taking some time uh, to, to to work out and, and see how see how that works and, and obviously brilliant that you have the ability to yeah manage that that time um to the extent that it, it doesn't sort of affect you during the day because i think we have a lot of conversations with people about how how you have to approach other barristers and that can particularly be a difficult one sure it, it, um against 
various people on in one day or people that you don't know people you know really well and sometimes you don't want to disclose to everyone all the time so that's um that's, that's really important that you've you know to hear or great to hear that you've you've reached a stage where you feel that you can yeah, go into these cases knowing I, I I'm, I'm sort of in the right place uh, myself which is um it, it's brilliant and it's lovely to hear that this career allows for that management um uh, it's, it's really really great to hear thank you um, now i have seen from your uh, twitter profile uh, that you are in leeds uh, but uh, on the odd occasion that you perhaps come down to london uh, or or maybe receive assistance um remotely how have the inns been uh with you uh, which inn are you with and and how uh, have you found their support uh in terms of professional associations and um perhaps your uh, your medical condition yeah, so, so I'm a member. I'm a member of Middle Temple, um, and, and, and to be honest, uh, with regards to the disability specifically, I haven't really engaged with them um, in terms of what they offer, just because I haven't really felt the need to. Really, I haven't felt the need to approach them or or, or, or speak to them um, generally about that because I felt that I've had the right level of help and support uh, through existing methods. So, so, so that's the only reason why uh, I haven't particularly. Uh, approach them but but i'd say more generally in terms of them as an in um they've been incredibly supportive all the way through they were very helpful when i when i was first transferring to the bar and, and putting all the forms together uh, and they were guide they gave me guidance and they actually admitted my application slightly late uh, to get into a particular call ceremony as well so they were very very helpful um and i've done the new practitioners program with them not so long ago and again that was fantastically organized uh, and well and well done as well so um, I, I'd very much support uh, and be an advocate of Middle Temple because they've been very helpful um, to me in general terms. That is a nice unbiased view because we are both at Inner and sometimes we <laughs> like to ask about Inner. So if people who have not chosen in yet are listening, they don't just hear Inner Temple propaganda from us. Um, so yeah, <laughs> the, middle, um, the middle are also welcoming. I'm, I don't doubt that they are, um, of course. Perfect. So this would be uh, my my last question, Stefan, and then I will hand you over to Charlotte, who will do the sort of the rest of the questions. Um, but my, uh, I was quite interested um, to know more about your work on circuit uh, and what um, a typical day would look in terms of the, the kind of work um, that a case might look like. Um, and of course, you said that you know uh, the circuit is quite uh, large. So you know, where could you be one day, and where could you be? the second day well, well well absolutely i mean i i think it's quite common with most circuits but the geographical spread of the northeastern circuit is absolutely vast so it goes up as far as newcastle uh, which also has uh, satellite courts in bedlington uh, and berwick upon tweed which are from where i live probably two two and a half hours travel away uh, and mm -hmm. they come as far south as um, grimsby in northeastern lincolnshire um, so it can be absolutely vast in terms of just the travel um, to get to court. Now, of course, that's been changed quite significantly by uh, remote working. Uh, and there's been a lot of uh, remote sittings which are starting to fall out of favour a, a little bit, uh, but are still used for, for, for shorter hearings. So travel has a, obviously has a big bearing on terms of your, your day. So it's really dependent about whether I am going to court or not. Uh, if I'm going to court, then generally I have to have left for most places on, on the circuit by about seven o'clock, um, arrive at court for nine, uh, assuming of course a 10 o'clock start, um, I have a conference with a client uh, in that time, speak to your opponent and then, and then you're ready for 
uh, a 10 o'clock start, uh, which generally takes you through till four. Travel home will get take you to about half past five, six o'clock. Uh, and then the real work begins in terms of dealing with anything that arises out of that particular hearing that day, any emails that have come in. Um, probably pause about 7.30 for a little bit of dinner um, and then carry on to about eight or nine o'clock. But again, that's only dictated by the by the need to be at court on that particular day. Obviously, everything compresses down a little bit if you've not got the need to, to travel to court. That can be depressed down into a slightly more uh, normal kind of day, really. So it really depends on on what's going on and, and how long you're going to be at court for, really. And now I, I, I did say that was my last question, but I have a follow-up question. Um, and, and I think um, it is quite topical and relevant, but it's uh, what your opinion on uh, remote hearing would be uh, coming from the disability perspective. Um, how, you know, uh, so I'll, I'll, I won't say anything more and I'll just, I'll just wait for you to answer. Yeah, it, it, it is an interesting one. And I, I don't think I'm alone in this, in that, that I find remote hearings actually quite tiring uh, because of the additional screen time that you perhaps wouldn't have. I'd know. say I agree, especially with bar school when everything went uh, remote all of a sudden. And I was like, my eyes are killing me. But at the same time, of course, there are benefits as well. There are, and especially on the extremities of the circuit. So some courts are particularly hard geographically to, to get to, uh, and it can encourage participation by having uh, remote hearings. But the right balance uh, has to be struck. And I think it, a lot of it depends on the type of hearing as well. If it's a short administrative hearing, then actually remote methods probably work quite well in terms of saving travel and saving expense for the parties and so on and so forth but if, but if it's a a really long hearing where findings of fact are required or determinations of law are required then i think they sit more naturally with with, with in in person hearings but I, I i don't think that um my condition that plays a particular part in having a preference for either or i think i think they just it's just how they work for everybody involved but i, I don't think they add a particular problem as i say above and beyond making you quite tired but but people i speak to i think that's quite a common feature for for a lot of people um mm -hmm. that they do that they do find that i suppose the other problem is, is is when you run into technical difficulties but i think that was more of a problem early on than it is now i think people are quite refined in their approach to uh, remote hearings and, and generally uh, if anything lets them down it's the actual technology itself uh, more than anything but or, or people's connections but i think in their place they, they can be a, a tool for good but they've got to be used uh, judiciously i think and i think that's uh, so having them still being used uh but in a very a very specific way i think is something that's come up quite frequently but it's interesting to hear you say that you, you find them tiring because that's not something i'd necessarily thought about because i think that going to somewhere is obviously quite for me is, is more tiring because I have a very physical condition and, and getting somewhere tires me out a lot um so it, it, once I get somewhere I find that my concentration is much higher and so yeah I hadn't sort of thought actually the difficulties of being on a screen all day and it's not yeah, even even now I'm talking to you if I'm trying to write a note I suddenly think oh I've got to be concentrating on the screen the whole time and not looking down because you think I'm not paying attention to things. Whereas in court, it would be very obvious if I was writing and things things like that. I think it changes your uh, approach. And it's particularly for smaller ones, I think that it's it, they are 
very useful for, for things that you don't need to necessarily go to a court for. But the things like meeting clients, uh, I don't think there's really a substitute for, for getting that sort of face-to-face beforehand or being there for them um, once, once you get there. So it's interesting to hear from you that, do you, have you sat virtually uh, and what's that been like? Yeah, yeah, yeah. So a large part of the early, uh, of my early career sitting was by remote methods. I don't think I did a face-to-face hearing for possibly the first three or four months of uh, uh, of sitting. So uh, I think that probably helped as well in terms of getting used to the technology uh, and getting mm-hmm. used to the way in which the lists worked with the technology as well. So I think that played quite an important part of my kind of acceptance of it uh, uh, as well. Um, but you said on your, your on your Twitter that you um, are you lecture and that you're doing a PhD at the moment, and I'm intrigued as to what those are. So what's what's brought you uh, to teaching and to going back to study, uh, and and what that focuses on. Yeah, of course. So so taking them in order in terms of lecturing. Um, I actually started that long ago, kind of back in 2014-15, uh, and I lectured uh, on a combination of things on the LPC, as it is, well, as it still is now, technically, um, in civil litigation and commercial litigation, uh, and also on the GDL for tort and, and, and contract. Um, uh, and I guess really that 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 arrived out of a time where um, what you do find in practice, and obviously it's practice area dependent, but you do lose. Uh, the connection with legal academia. Uh, and I found that quite sad in some respects uh, because it was also that interested me. I had a really interesting time doing my first law degree um, uh, and found that really interesting. Uh, and around that time in 2016, uh, I did a master's in law um, just to see, to, to get that connection back again and, and just to see how I got on. And I really enjoyed that. I think it was 18 months it took me to do that um, and really enjoyed it. Um, so it was that that springboarded into uh, the PhD, which I'm, I'm still doing and uh, I'm working through at the moment. Uh, and the PhD is actually linked back to practice in, in an interesting way, because uh, I'm looking at post LASPO reforms uh, of civil and family law uh, and how they've affected access to justice. So it's all quite um, closely linked back into practice areas as well, because personal injury was one of the, uh, and private family law, were the two of the areas that were hit quite significantly by uh, post LASPO reforms. Uh, it's been quite interesting to bring an academic spin to that um, uh, and look at how that works. This has all been quite interesting. Uh, and as I say, really out of a desire to stay connected with the, the legal academic work, uh, which in some areas of practice you, you do lose a little bit. Uh, that's It's really interesting to hear because I, I have considered continuing uh, to do education. Um, I, I did my master's, but I did a very practical master's. I, I worked with um, a domestic violence organization and sort of wrote up about my sort of what I'd learned uh, sort of in that in that practice. Um, but I have an intri- I feel like I've lost that little bit of education. I try and write sometimes. But um, how has the balance been with everything else you do <laughs> to then be doing a PhD at the same time? What's that like to be in practice? And just for anyone who's listening um, who doesn't know what LASPO is, if you're early on in your career, it's the Legal Aid Sentencing and Punishment of Offenders Act. Have I got that right? Yeah, um, 2012, yeah. 2012. Um, but yeah, what, what, what's, the, what's the balance like for you? Um, it's it's like it's like any it's like anything in life and and, uh, and being at the bar even if being at the bar is the only thing you do uh, and I've yet to meet a barrister that, that is the only thing that they do but even if it were there would still be a need to kind of balance your practice and your work life balance uh, and, it, and it's no different I've just perhaps got more balls to juggle than than, than some other people 
Um, but but it, and it is it is a challenge at times, and sometimes you neglect one thing over another, and then you have to try and uh, rebalance it back again. But it but it is all possible, but it does require an amount a large amount of self discipline and a large amount of planning as well. And provided you can do that and show the commitment to that. Uh, then that gets you a long way in terms of finding the right balances. Uh, I, I, what I found as well is that over time, things happen uh, quite naturally, and that just leads to little pockets of time here and there, uh, which allow you to, to to fit things in. So, um, yeah, I think it's a combination of that and, and the need to be disciplined uh, and to plan very well. And in, and with teaching uh, on top of that, what's the teaching been like in terms of, uh, if you've been teaching through the pandemic, has that been, what's that been from a, we don't really ever talk to someone from the teacher side of you um, for that. And then what we what was that uh, training like beforehand uh, now and mm-hmm. how's it gone back? So there's been quite a lot of changes uh, since the pandemic, certainly on the, the bar courses, whatever their various mm-hmm. uh, <laughs> um, letters are now. Uh, but yeah, what's that, what was that teaching like? And what is it like now that you're in practice, you're a very different approach than you think you would have done? Uh, early on yes i mean yeah i mean yeah in terms of um teaching yes your practice and your experiences of practice do have a large part to play in that teaching especially on something like the lpc which is a vocational course anyway Uh, and it's all about relating the theoretical elements in the teaching to to real practical examples and students find i think generally that that being able to be given practical examples of of, of cases that you've dealt with obviously anonymized in the right way um actually really help them to place things uh into context uh i mean in terms of teaching i i didn't teach during the pandemic i I had a bit of a break because i had so many other things on my plate anyway Uh, and that was part of time intentional time management on my part but having returned to it again recently um it has changed in terms of um, the way in which things are dealt with. So everything's become paperless now at the organisation that I teach at, uh, which is a, quite a challenge because it's quite a paper-heavy course um, pre-pandemic. So that that's required a little bit of getting up to, to speed with. And uh, there have been some online sessions. So again, getting used to the software and getting used to how, how all that works uh, has, has been a bit of a, uh, a challenge. But I don't think the course is any poorer for it. I think, uh, if anything, the ability to uh collaborate with students uh interactively but electronically actually works quite well and it's quite a good um discipline for practice as well because practice has gone largely that way as well i think i've been paperless in practice pretty much since i came to the bar in 2019 um uh, which was a bit of a shock but but actually you get used to it very quickly um so actually doing that in, uh, in teaching and lecturing uh, is quite a good practice for when you get into practice as well that's a really good point. I mean, I remember my first mini pupilage where I had to be the one to help get 14 ring binders oh, of material into court. Uh, and then the lift was broken and it was terrible. Um, but I remember looking at that and going, oh, no, I can't imagine no paper. And there was one one barrister with an iPad. And I thought, no, that's not how things are not going to go that way. And then give it a few years. And actually the one person with bundles in the room was the odd one out and not, the, not in the majority. Um, but I think, I think it's really beneficial having had some, uh, my one of my tutors for the course and for my um uh, and for my masters as well with someone in practice in the area that I was in and I can't state how beneficial that was uh, as a student to hear it in practice because sometimes particularly if you're learning areas that you're not necessarily going into it does just feel like a very heavy 
course and I'm sure the LPC can feel the same as I'm sure the G I can't imagine doing the GDL I think no, no. I, I, can't, I, I can't either I, I can't ever imagine a time where I would have got through it so no, no, I, I, I look at people who did it and actually the people who did the GDL on my bar course were the most intelligent phenomenal people I've ever met and all of them had people who just lined up already so it clearly works for those people with minds that way but I don't think I could have done it so I'm sure having yeah that Put practically helps to pick up that ridiculously vast amount of information that, that they have to <laughs> pick up within the year. Um, I had um, uh, a, a barrister who was who used to be in practice as my lecturer as well uh, on the bar course, and it just helps so much, especially with uh, <laughs> finding the distinction of this is what the BSV want you to learn, but in yeah. practice, it's actually like this. Yeah. yeah. Um, and any listeners out there, uh, it's something you should sort of pick up early on and do it by the book um of course always do it by the book um but you know it was just so helpful having um a barrister who had been in practice who would tell us everything so it's really interesting to hear it from from your perspective as well in our last uh, few minutes we we end on a little um sort of a triptych of questions uh, which uh, sort of go together um and we'll flip them around so that we end up on a positive but um Regarding your condition, has there been firstly a any negative experiences that you think it would be beneficial to share? Maybe that was with with someone, or with the discovery, or with the diagnosis. Anything that you just say that was not a great part of having this condition. Followed by, is there been one person who you or or moment or again a situation where you think that uh, that was a real positive uh, in your in your um, uh, coming to the solicitor bar or, or coming to the judiciary uh, and then lastly what would you like people to take away from this podcast uh, or from your journey and your story um, or a little nugget of wise wisdom that people could take away with them yeah that's a lot well, 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 well no it's really interesting actually because relating to the first two I'll come on to the last one later on but but in terms of the first two they actually arise out of the same thing which which I think is probably quite interesting um, in that it was quite early on in my practice at the bar. Um, uh, uh, and as always, early on in your practice at the bar, you can be a little bit quiet at times. Uh, and the clerks came to me and said, oh, we, we, we've got this trial for you tomorrow. This this was at lunchtime the day before. Uh, will you take it on? And kind of in an eagerness to please, uh, I thought, yeah, I'll take it on. Uh, I'll do it. Uh, not thinking about it. And then I got the bundle and I just felt so overwhelmed by it because there was so much to it it not been and it wasn't a fault of the clerk who rang me at the time but the case wasn't quite the way in which the instructing solicitors uh, uh, dealt with it and I kind of sat down for about an hour and I probably cried for about 20 minutes of that because I just felt in such a hole in terms of what I was going to do uh, with this particular case and um, that was probably the lowest moment I, I I've had and it was making me really stressed which was making me my, my kind of condition flare up uh, I, I, and once I pulled myself together I actually rang the clerk back and I had a really honest conversation with him and I explained that, look, I'm just massively overwhelmed by all this. Uh, I can't possibly take this on. Uh, and the response was amazing. It was just, no problem, give me 10 minutes and I'll sort it. Uh, and within 10 minutes, he'd come back and I said, yeah, we found someone else who can do this trial tomorrow. Uh, I forwarded the papers to them. You don't have to worry about it. Um, so, so it was interesting that, that, that out of probably a really bad moment came a really good moment. Uh, and they were really, um, really helpful. Uh, and that was a really positive moment. And that really encouraged me to speak up in the future as well about times where 
things were a little bit more difficult because I had confidence in the fact that that the clerks were going to be really helpful with me uh, and, and do their best to help me wherever possible. So uh, out of a bad moment came a good moment uh, and it was definitely a learning point uh, and something that was that was in the end very positive out of something that perhaps was a was a little bit um, adverse. Um, and in terms of my observations on things generally, um, I think I would say for anybody with any kind of uh, disability of any kind, don't let it put you off. You can go and have a career in the law. It is possible. And not only can you have a career, you can thrive uh, in that career. Um, it's going to perhaps take a little bit more work than somebody who doesn't have that condition. But again, don't let that put you off. Um, things are probably, even in the time that I've practiced law over the last 20 years in various guises, things have changed significantly for the better. Uh, and I feel we're at a moment now where things are probably very good in terms of being able to access um, the legal profession and be able to have a career, notwithstanding the fact you have uh, a condition and you can absolutely do it. There will be bad times, but there will be plenty of support there for you uh, and take up as much of that support as you can, because there are plenty of people out there that will be willing to help you uh, further your career. I think that is the perfect summary of what we are trying to achieve by having this podcast. Mm -hmm. Um, and yeah. I, that's exactly what we want people to know. And so I couldn't think of a, a better takeaway because that was yeah, the whole purpose of when yeah. when I first uh, yeah got diagnosed and found wanted to start this podcast. I start wanted to start it because I didn't know what was out there. I didn't know what to find, and I didn't know if this career was for me. Even at that sort of later stage, I thought actually. I need to meet other people and um yeah I was good friends with Halima and so we've sort of had this journey together um but uh yeah hearing uh, other people able to do this career is one of the things that we hope that this podcast will uh yeah uh, will achieve because we've got had so many people with so many different conditions and that's what's really lovely to uh be able to to show that regardless of, of what your condition is um there is a place for you somewhere hopefully um and that's thank you so much for doing such a a wonderful conclusion there because that is exactly what yeah. we achieve um achieve with this and 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 take from you so it's it's really wonderful and what i love when we have um people who have gone sort of the way through particularly um to become judges uh, to show that every step uh yeah every area uh, um career in the law is, is is sort of possible and it's not you don't have to stop at the bar if you don't want to there is a possibility of moving on and it's been lovely to hear from you mm -hmm. that that is not just possible but actually they've been very accommodating with you as a judge almost more even more so than the bar um, but also lovely to hear that you have we, we we talk quite often about the importance of clerks because that is something I think they are sort of unsung heroes sometimes and the people that um however lovely your colleagues are other members of the bar your clerks the ones who are going to to, to be there for you if you need to have those conversations um, and that's such an important um important thing when if you're people are listening are at the stage of, of looking for chambers yeah, if you can sort of get to know clerks in various ways. As a paralegal, I got to know a lot of clerks, and that was really beneficial to know how accommodating they were. Um, so that that final story is is lovely, but also good. Uh, it's, it's lovely that you were able to share yeah something that was very negative for you that became good. <laughs> I don't think we've had that yet. I think those have always been two separate, <laughs> two separate. Yeah. Um, so the fact that yeah, it's it's okay if things aren't perfect and if you can't handle something it is okay to speak up about that is a really important uh, sort of thing to take away from that and, and also how wonderful people can be 
um, by by having that confidence to speak up because that, and that's not going to be easy. You know, it's not going to necessarily everyone's going to be able to talk for the first time. But um, yeah, really appreciate that story and such a wonderful ending. So thank you so much. Um, You're welcome. Thank you. Thank you so much for coming on. No problem. You're absolutely welcome. Lovely to speak to you. We really appreciate it. Thank you. Um, and so for anyone listening uh, out there, thank you very much. And we're still taking guests for the last part of season two, if not season three. We'll <laughs> um, <laughs> think about that when it comes to it. Um, but thank you very much, uh, Stefan, for coming on, for talking to us um, and reaching out. And to everyone listening, thank you very much. Um, I've been Charlotte McDonald with my co-host. Halima Farouk. Yes. Uh, and thank you very much uh, and uh, you've been listening to Disabilities Not A Bar we will see you in the next episode goodbye for me bye thanks bye, bye.